Welcome to this podcast on EU-Belarusian relationship. To make up for my monologue, I'd like to introduce this segment with a beautiful Belarusian song that reflects both its past and its future. You can see it as a metaphor. Today we met by video conference to discuss the increasingly concerning situation in Belarus and to express one clear message. The European Union stands in solidarity with the people of Belarus. That was Charles Michel, President of the European Council, on conclusions on the matter of Belarus. So what exactly is the matter in Belarus? The central figure in this story is Alexander Lukashenko, President of Belarus, a country landlocked in between Poland, Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania and Russia. He has frequently been called the last dictator of Europe. Many times before, his regime has been able to escape sustaining scrutiny from the EU. The 2020 election, however, which resulted in a reported 80% of the vote for Lukashenko, can be seen as a breaking point. The extent to which this stirrup will break ties, though, depends not so much on who can benefit from doing something or nothing. No, the burden of the democratic future of Belarus and its people falls on political shoulders. On the political shoulders of the leaders of the 27 EU countries, to be exact. Yes, it's a very political issue. EU defense and external affairs policy is formally strictly intergovernmental. No surprise, once more the ability for the EU as most credible intervening agent in the geographical area is hampered by its own internal geographic disunity. Cyprus blocks the Council's proposed sanctions against Belarus and its government. However, Belarus, democracy, the credibility of the EU, they cannot wait for institutional struggles. That is why this policy proposal sets out and weighs the following concrete measures to be taken, rather sooner than later. The EU has two options. Either it forms a coalition of the willing, or it will review its thaw period between the EU and Belarus and build policy on that. But to better understand these proposals, we should first delve into some Belarusian history. Introduction. Belarus has had a checkered history with moments of independence and, more often, eras of Polish, Lithuanian, Ruthenian, Prussian, Austrian and ever-returning Russian pressures. It suffered the greatest human losses per person in Europe during World War II, got most affected by the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, and in recent years has had to deal with EU sanctions and the unifying aspirations of Putin's Russian government. Here, however, we are focusing on the relationship between Belarusian human rights abuses and its affairs with the European Union. There seems to be a potential shift in the attitude of the European leaders with regards to the situation in Belarus. In some respect, there now seems to be unprecedented urgency to use European soft power in its full capacity. So, why should the EU intervene in the first place? Brutal crackdowns and a time of writing at least 6,700 arrests, 100,000 protests and marches, all these events have compounded with the increased usage of new media, for example, Telegram. Political pressure is increasing in Brussels and in the capitals, not the least because these events also affect political sentiment in Moscow. 
problem setting. Some international relations theories could provide some insights into the persisting situation, the status quo. And besides, we could assess whether we are now in the twists and turns of a breaking point in Belarusian history, or simply the audience to another Lukashenko show. We start by asking ourselves, is the status quo of the Axis EU-Belarus-Russia intact? If not, what should be the EU's first move? According to Andrei Yauharo, director of the Minsk-based think tank Center for European Transformation, the status quo remains. EU action is temporary, half-hearted and indecisive. Already in 2013, he argued that Belarus is not a serious enough problem for the EU. In 2015, quote, after the abolition of the sanctions, the EU and Minsk will further expect from each other for the steps that no one is going to take. The situation in the country will not change. Only the third force can affect it. If the Belarusian civil society doesn't become this third force, then Russia will become it. Theoretical analysis. To reiterate, to address the matter, it is imperative for decision makers to understand the ins and outs of the situation. Overreacting risks doing more harm than benefits of prevention, and misjudged inaction can leave actors quickly losing alternative options. Bipolar peace, if it's rational. Seen as a game of chess, the first mover in this situation has an ambiguous advantage. You secure a new position, but every move you make, you forfeit alternatives that might have brought you more. For example, if Russia steps in, Russo-Belarusian relations will likely be virtually inseverable. But just like in the Crimea, the first mover, Russia in this case, owns the costly conflict while losing access to its main trading partner, EU at least, it used to be and it potentially would be. Any move at all is risky pricier than no move. Besides this, groupisms play a key role in this force field because of the flourishing national sentiment under the Belarusians. Exogenous four will galvanize them. The Belarusians are wedged between antipoles. The famous international relations scholar Kenneth Waltz forwarded in 1959 that great power war would tend to be more frequent in multipolarity an international system shaped by the power of three or more major states, than bipolarity, an international system shaped by the power of two major states or superpowers. The pre-existence of the status quo should be at least should be the least costly option for the EU in this sense. However, the concept of a buffer state as a goal rather than a means seems arguably quaint or even anachronistic. More importantly, Vladimir Putin has expressed willingness to intervene with hard power means in Belarus. Trade-offs in promoting your neighbor's democracy. According to Grimm and Leininger, for the sake of stability and peace building, democracy promoters act by 1. Reforming the security sector in order to secure public life and provide legitimate means to control the use of force. 2. By developing the rule of law in order to reduce human rights violations. 3. By investing in a market economy free from corruption in order to discourage individuals from believing that the surest path to fortune is by capturing the state and 4. 
by supporting democracy in order to reduce the tendency towards arbitrary power, give a voice to all segments of society. These missions reflect neatly the European neighborhood policy. A quick rundown of the Belarusian status can inform the likelihood of success for these policies. Belarus has been part of the European neighborhood policy for about 13 years and the EU has been the largest grant donor in Belarus. Since 2016, the financial allocation for Belarus has amounted to around 30 million annual grant assistance, with the current portfolio standing at close to 135 million of commitments. Policy failure. Collective action. Problems. So, did this work? No. The Belarusian relationships are still hanging under a Democlassian sword. And if you look at The Economist's democracy rating, which incorporates all these factors, since 2007, it looks as if Belarus is oscillating rather than moving upwards. Perhaps this failure is due to Grimm and Leininger's concept of conflicting objectives, such as investing in a state that uses economic benefits to build a stronger grip on the population. The Council should strive to meet its goals. Either these goals must be reassessed, the policy must be reassessed, or the council setup must be reassessed. Different interests in the council cause the deadlocks that cause policy response failure. This type of collective action problem resembles that of refugee protection policy. Not every actor stands to gain from a policy change, like a revision of the European neighborhood policy or a risky intervention. For Cyprus, the benefits of blocking action on Belarus are lower than spending their risk on dealing with Turkey, for instance. Second, thaw period revisited. The second option would be to revisit the thaw period between 2008 and 2010 and replicate the policies that were ostentatiously successful then, like promoted by Belarusian activist and academic Andrei Yoharo. What would be done differently is that this time the funding and the awareness campaigns go more directly to the civil society organizations that the European External Action Service identifies as conducive to the policy objectives. Although this targeted approach would constitute something more assertive, incurring conflict risk, this could be cancelled out by the existing external risk from the 2020 civil unrest. So, to conclude this admittedly very realist explanation of the situation, the concrete recommendations for the European Union are that the Council should consider forming a coalition of the willing, or the Council should consider targeted civil society organization support. I do invite you to already take a look at the Council conclusions of the 1st of October, and look forward to discussing this next time with you.